here we go without without any further delays. Boom. I want to talk first of all about pilgrims then and now. Pilgrims then and now. We're going to be talking about pilgrims in general. Just take a look at these pictures and you will probably see these pictures again pretty soon. In fact, let me back up here. What's that picture of? The pilgrims, of course. And what is that a picture of? Well, you know what? It's a picture of pilgrims. Where exactly are they? My guess would be maybe in India from the way they're dressed or whatever. Um, whoa. What is this a picture of? This is Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, looking across the Kidron Valley to the beautiful gold dome on the Mosque of Omar. How many of you seen have seen that view personally? Libby, you've seen it how many times? Five, seven, a lot of times. How many of uh, Tootsie, I know you have. Maybe some, any of you lined up to be going uh, soon? Ah, Aline and Casper, you guys are going to have stories when you come back from there. And a full heart. All right, it looks like there's room for one more picture on this page. <laughs> there he is. You guys, you guys. If you didn't see the hat that I was wearing, this hat says Pilgrim Tours. How relevant could this be? I got this hat on one of my tours in Israel. All right, let's go more specifically. Pilgrims, uh, a pilgrim by definition. Here we go. You can start writing now. A pilgrim by the dictionary is defined as, first of all, a wanderer. Second of all, and there's maybe a wanderer on the right-hand lower screen, one who travels to a shrine or holy place as a religious act. One who travels to a shrine or holy place as a religious act. Now, those of you who are going to be going on on the Israel trip or have gone on Israel trips before, I don't know that we could qualify your trip to Israel exactly in this way. You didn't go as a, uh, as a religious act, hoping to get who knows what from it. But there is a time of year when the Muslims travel to, where did they go? Mecca. Mecca. And huge numbers of them. And, and perhaps that picture that we saw on the screen, and I think I can put it up again here now, if I'm correct in making this identification that this is maybe in India, it could very well be that these are pilgrims making a pilgrimage to the, what river? Ganges. The Ganges River. The Ganges River. They don't travel to the Ganges River because it's one of the cleanest rivers in the world. It is not. It's horribly, horribly polluted and unclean and all. But they travel there as a part of a ritual experience that they will have. <clears throat> a third thing, and this is from a dictionary now, not a Bible dictionary, especially in its plural form, pilgrims, is used to refer to any of the band of English Puritans who founded Plymouth Colony in 1620. We refer to them as the pilgrims very commonly, and in not too many weeks we will be turning our attention in many ways to Thanksgiving and the pilgrims coming. 
I want you to open your Bible with me to the next scripture reference, first one that you'll see on this sheet, and it is from the book of Hebrews and from the great chapter in Hebrews, which is oftentimes referred to as the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11. We certainly do not have time to read all of Hebrews chapter 11 today. But, I want us to look in Hebrews chapter 11, and you'll notice that in verse 8, one of the heroes of the faith is named, it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Abraham and Sarah. You know what? We skip down to verse 17, and it talks more about Abraham, but Let's make this observation at this point. The observation comes from verse 13. These, and it's talking about Abraham and the other patriarchs, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. All right, what shall we write? These all died in faith. That's your next notation. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Maybe I should wait on that point. Note, in spite of having received staggering promises from God. Why do I call them staggering promises? Abraham, an old man, as good as dead, as it says in Hebrews here, he was told that he would have descendants like the stars in the heavens, like the sands on the seashore. Too many to count. But in spite of having received staggering promises from God and being fully convinced that he would be faithful, capital H-E, that is, God would be faithful in fulfilling them, Abraham knew that this world was not his final dwelling place. This world was not his final dwelling place even when he got 
a little bit more than one foot's worth of property, this world wasn't his final dwelling place. And as we read back in verses 16 and verse 10, they, these great patriarchs who lived by faith, they desired a better country, a better country, a heavenly one, a city whose designer and builder is God. Abraham. Could Abraham qualify as a pilgrim of old? To be sure. We usually refer to him as a patriarch, but certainly he can qualify as a pilgrim of old. Well, let's turn in our Bible backwards to come to the book of Psalms, and let's come to rest in Psalm 73. Psalm 73. There are two things that I want you to note in Psalm 73. The first thing is, I want you to note who the author is. Now, how are you going to figure that one out? I mean, other than the divine author. Who's the human author? Who's the penman for Psalm 73? Asaph is his name. Where do you find that? All the way back in what we commonly refer to as the Psalm superscription, where there's oftentimes the name of the author, or perhaps some musical designations, or perhaps even the occasion for the writing of the psalm. At the beginning of Psalm 73, it says, A Psalm of Asaph. Well, let's drop down now to verses 25 and 26. And I think I can probably say with a pretty high degree of assurance. When we read verses 25 and 26, a lot of you in this classroom are going to say, I love those verses. They are some of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. And I certainly would add my name to yours. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph the psalmist expressed it well for himself and us in declaring that we will not find anyone or anything will not find anyone or anything on earth that will satisfy our souls. Nothing that will fully satisfy our souls. How's everybody doing? Good? Did I miss any blanks yet? It yeah, will... A city, let's see, where they desired a, a better country... A heavenly one. 1116. Yeah. A city whose designer and builder is God. No, but the one before 1116. 1116. They desired a better country, a heavenly one. Yeah. All right. We love what Asaph said there, but it's time to move on. And so, let's turn back even further in our Old Testament to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, 
chapter 23. Book of Exodus, chapter 23. <clears throat> and in Exodus chapter 23, verses 14 through 17. Three times, three times in a year, you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appeal before the Lord God. Now, here we go. Here we go. I hope you didn't try to write in anything yet. Pilgrim feasts is what these three were called. This is when the the religious calendar of the Jews was being established. What are these three pilgrim feasts that I've just read about here? Well, the first is Passover. It is referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That is Passover. The second is oftentimes referred to as the Feast of Weeks, called here the Feast of Harvest, in the New Testament, that's referred to as the Feast of Pentecost. We know it more familiarly by the name of the Feast of Pentecost. So the early chapters in the book of Acts refer to the most amazing thing that happened in Jerusalem when Peter preached the Feast of Pentecost. The third of the feasts is the Feast of Booze. It is called here in this passage the Feast of Ingathering. And you'll notice that there are there is a parallel passage in Deuteronomy as well. The Feast of Booths is more commonly referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles. A booth is a tabernacle, an impermanent dwelling place for them to dwell. And that would remind them of the, their wilderness wanderings. These things were established in the Law of Moses to be, to be pilgrim feasts where every male Jew of age was required to be in Jerusalem for them, if at all possible, pilgrim feet. So you can imagine that during the years when these things were observed, that the population of Jerusalem swelled when all these pilgrims came for these pilgrim feasts. Pilgrim songs that were to be sung I want you to flip over now back to the book of Psalms. Back to the book of Psalms. And go to Psalm 120. Right after the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. Go to Psalm 120. And I'm just going to show you the rest that goes on this slide here. And you will notice this as we look in our Bibles at Psalm 120 and the following Psalms. And I think you will find a Psalm superscription for each of these Psalms too, won't you? 
you may find the words, a song of ascents. How many of you find that? A song of ascents. Anybody find a different term? Okay. These are the psalms or songs of ascent. And I think a very leading suggestion for them and a very reasonable and logical uh, explanation for these psalms is that these psalms were to be sung by the pilgrims who were going up to Jerusalem for the celebration of these feasts. And so this little section of Psalms 120 up through 135, they're all relatively short psalms, but they were to be sung by the pilgrims who were going up to Jerusalem. All right, where to next? Ah, I just added a couple words at the bottom of the picture here. And let me just say a word about that picture that I chose on the screen. And I love searching for and finding appropriate pictures to go on the screen rather than just having words appear on the screen. This picture is actually by an artist who became a very favorite of mine, certainly not alive now. His name is James Tissot, T-I-S-S-O-T. Anybody in the room ever heard that name? James Tissot. James Tissot was an artist who excelled at beautiful paintings of the upper gentry, the upper class among the beautiful people in Europe. I don't know whether they were in the French, in France, or whatever. But through various reasons, and I don't have time to tell the story, uh, perhaps through a vision or something like that, he became impressed that he should paint, he should devote his talents to painting pictures of the Holy Land and the events of the Bible and the Holy Land. And I'll tell you what, I've just fallen in love. I mean, the, the story goes that uh, he, tr he made several trips to the Holy Land, viewing all the places personally and all. Uh, this is a picture of pilgrims going up in pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Can you repeat the spelling of his name, please? T-I-S-S-O-T. James Tissot. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, let's... Oh, at the bottom, those words, I just threw in those words here. All of life is a pilgrimage. All of life. Not just three particular times for us. How about in the New Testament now? And here's another picture that I put in here. This is a picture of the Apostle Paul. Is this what I think the Apostle Paul looked like? Absolutely not. <laughs> For several reasons. I don't think Paul looked like that. But I love this picture. This is a picture, believe it or not, a painting by Rembrandt. You've heard the name Rembrandt. You may not have heard of James Tissot, but you've heard the name of Rembrandt. Rembrandt made some beautiful pictures of Scripture. I don't know whether you can see this. Probably not many of you can see this on the picture. Let me go to the back here. I can see it. Of course, I know it's there. But I, can, I can imagine it if I don't see it. Yeah. If I'm standing right next to you, I can see it. In the left-hand part of the picture, you can just see part 
of what is there. Anybody know what that is? A sword? It's a sword. It's a sword right here. Coming up close to it, you can see the whole thing. Maybe you can just see the hilt of it if you're in the back. The pictures that the great masters painted, especially of the Apostle Paul, are almost invariably pictured with a sword in them. And why is that? The sword of the spirit? The armor of God? Uh, is it because something you were never told? Paul was a great swordsman. No. Not that. Do you know why they're in there? They are in there. They, they appear in these pictures because Paul was to die as a martyr. And how specifically did he die? He was beheaded. Was he beheaded by a great axe? No, by a sword. And these, these, these great masters, when they painted Paul, they kind of worked a sword in there just as a sort of an indicator that this man is going to die as a martyr. I'm spending too long telling you about the pictures here. The Apostle Paul. I have the scripture reference here in our notes, of course, and it's a great, great passage from Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, where Paul informs us of the dilemma that he was in. Now, when Paul wrote the book of Philippians, Paul was a prisoner, uh, not a prisoner in a dungeon, no, Paul was a prisoner under house arrest in Rome for two years, described briefly at the very end of the book of Acts, but at that point in time, Paul didn't know the outcome of that imprisonment, and, and Paul was in a great dilemma to know which would be best for me to stay or for me to go. But in Philippians chapter 1, and I'll just back up a tiny bit uh, to verse 21, which you got to love. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Anybody in this room agree with that? Well, of course we do. To depart and to be with Christ is far better. If we knew, we could find the exit door between here and going to get in our car. I would take the exit door. However, however, Paul did not make his exit. Paul did not die of martyrdom at that point in time. And Paul realized that he had a ministry opportunity to minister to the Philippians and others if he remained. And he did remain. He remained probably as much as uh, maybe a half a dozen years longer in this world. Paul's longing was to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul also said, and this is in Philippians as well, further on in the book, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, toward the very end of the book, but our citizenship is in heaven, 
And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are, we are all, in that sense, dual citizens. We are citizens here of the United States. Who knows? There may be somebody in this room who has a dual earthly citizenship, maybe a citizen of the United States and Canada at the same time or whatever. I thought we were called sojourners. Sojourners? Yes. We're called Our both citizenship of them. Is in heaven. We're called both of them. Oh, okay. Sojourners, yeah. <clears throat> I also have a reference from 1 Peter, 1 Peter. Now, Peter is writing approximately the same time that Paul is writing. Peter is writing, according to chapter 1 and verse 1, he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, but Peter says in the course of writing this book in verse 11. Let me go back to verse 9 because I like the way this flows from verse 9 on. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the, experience, the excellencies of of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, Larry, you ready? Yeah. As sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. As long as we're in this world, we are in that warfare, in that battle. We are sojourners and exiles or strangers and pilgrims, as the older translations put it, as the King James puts it, for example. Strangers and pilgrims. But there's more. But there's more. In your notes, we have, concerning modern-day pilgrims, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, that's what John 17 is normally referred to as the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. It is the longest prayer that we have recorded from the Lord Jesus. In his high priestly prayer, he reminded his disciples that although they were in the world, they were not of the world. I didn't put the verses down there, did I? No. Could anybody tell me what verses they come from? Well, I have verses 11 and following all the way down through 16. So let's read that section here. Okay, beginning with verse 11. Remember, Jesus is in prayer. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. I think that expression is pretty familiar to us. That is, we are in the world, but not of the world. That is right out of Jesus' words in the high priestly prayer. That's not something that a youth pastor came up with sometime or your grandma came up with. That's, that's biblical truth from the Lord Jesus. Now, James. Let's flip over to James. Now, James begins his epistle, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Now, let me say this one thing with regard to the book of James. It is, I think, generally held among conservative Bible scholars that James was the first written book of the New Testament. The first written book of the New Testament. It might not seem so because it's so late in our New Testament books, but James was in all likelihood the first written book of the New Testament. Now when we come to chapter 4, chapter 4, listen to what James says. I'm going to start at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous People, that's James addressing his audience. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if you figured out how to put all that in, James straightforwardly accuses his readers, calling them adulterous people, of friendship with the world, thus making them enemies of God. That's pretty sobering. Pretty sobering. So, what we've just spent a better part of a half an hour or so looking at is that there is abundant warrant in Scripture, as if we needed any, but here it is anyhow abundant warrant that God's people are sojourners. They're pilgrims. They're strangers in this world. We are in this world, but this is not where we belong, ultimately. It's not. Now, I've called this in our notes. Ah, let me give you this quote. I don't know whether I have it. I don't think I have a slide for this quote, but I gave you a little bit of this. Back when I was initially putting this study together, I found this quote from my dear friend Burke Parsons, who is the pastor at 
St. Andrew's Chapel, Dr. Sproul's Church. Uh, he was writing in Table Talk magazine back in September 2018, and Burke said this. We are pilgrims on our journey home. We are pilgrims on our journey home. And we are homesick. We are homesick for a place we have never been. We are foreigners, aliens and strangers in a strange land whose citizenship in heaven is secure in the one who has gone before us who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and who is returning to judge, to conquer, and to consummate. Homesick for heaven. Don't you love those words? Yeah, do you feel homesick for heaven? It's a good expression, I'd say. All right, we come in the notes to number two, John Bunyan, Pilgrim Par Excellence. And I want to briefly run through, and in 15 minutes, this is ridiculous to even try this, but to run through an overview of John Bunyan. And if you could ever read books about his life or see a presentation in any number of venues about his life, it is absolutely fascinating. But we're going to see his life reflected in many, reflect, many respects in Pilgrim's Progress. So here we go. Here we go. He is born November 30th, 1628. Now, for many years, for many years, I, the sources that I consulted said, born in November 1628. But I, I made a discovery that it seems that November 30th was the day, the year 1628, in Elstow, E-L-S-T-O-W, Elstow, which is in England, of course. He was the oldest of four children, and his father was a tinker. What? His father was a tinker. 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 What is a tinker? Not a stinker. A tinker. <laughs> Many of you could relate to that. Joy. Like Tinkerbell, how she tinkered with everything and made all these new inventions. Uh, I will say yes and no, yes and no. I think we can fine-tune that. Colleen? I, I, I don't know, but I'm thinking something to do with metal. Ah, uh, ah. He repaired pots and pans. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He repaired pots and pans and stuff like that. He was like a metal worker. Did he have a good truck for his tools and everything? No. Did he tote them around in a backpack, quite possibly? Yeah. Perhaps even something like an anvil? I think I ever tried to pick up an anvil? Pretty heavy. Yeah. You don't carry them around. Yeah. So his father was a tinker. His parents were illiterate, but he attended school to learn to read and write. I don't read a whole lot of information more than that because he was not university trained. Many of those Puritans from that period of time were university trained, well-schooled and everything. Bunyan did not have that advantage, but listen, Bunyan's writings show that he was a very educated, very educated man. In Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which he wrote and is his autobiography, he says, he spent his days in sin, 
risking disgrace and open shame, risking disgrace and open shame, cursing, swearing, lying, blasphemy, and you can see the last one is the last line on the board here, and playing tip cat on the village green on the Sabbath. Playing tip cat on the village green on the Sabbath. Does anybody know what tip cat is? Gambling. Gambling? All right. That's a guess, right? Gambling. No. You know what? Because our time is going so rapidly here, I'm going to leave that one undescribed next week. We'll see if one of my illustrious students can tell us what TipCat is. But at this point, I, w I would say this. Whatever you're going to find, TipCat is. And I could explain it to you right now, but I'm not going to. But he was doing it on the Sabbath. That's what he saw as a great sin. He was he was he was breaking the Sabbath. He was desecrating the Sabbath by doing it. In 1644, when he was 16, his mother died. And a month later, his sister died as well. His sister named Margaret. His sister died as well. His father remarried a month after that. Probably pretty quick, I'd say. <laughs> but anyhow, I mean, does that affect? Did that affect him at all? I think probably. Yeah. In 1644, when he was 16, his mother died, and then the next bullet. John then joined the Parliamentary Army, the Parliamentary Army, and to go through. The history of England at this point would be very, very helpful in seeing the factions and everything. Don't have time to do that. But John Bunyan joined the Parliamentary Army. The Civil War ended in 1647, and he returned to Elstow to resume his trade. And what do you think his trade was? A tinker, like his father to resume his trade and his sinful behavior. His sinful behavior. And as the screen indicates here, in 1648 he married a woman probably named Mary. Why do most of the sources say probably named Mary? Because her name, I don't think, is ever given. But the speculation is that in those days, when children were born into a family, the first daughter was always named by the mother's name. And the first daughter, the first child, was Mary. In 1648, he married a woman probably named Mary. They had four children, the first of which, parenthesis, Mary, was born blind. And I'll tell you what, there, there are some really, really charming, uh, touching stories about 
John Bunyan's relation to his blind daughter, Mary. His wife brought two books with her into the marriage when she and John were married. The names of those books are The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven, The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven, and the other book is The Practice of Piety. Piety. Now, now remember, when, when we hear the name piety and the, the word pious, we oftentimes don't have a good vibe about that. You know, somebody who's pious, you know. No, these are good names. These are, these are good descriptive terms, very good descriptive terms. So these books were brought into the marriage. Uh, let me stop here and say that, have, have we said anything yet about his conversion? No, we haven't. But these are some of the influences that God used on his life in bringing him to the cross. Conversion. All right. There are a couple more influences, and here is our next one. In the spring of 1652, when he was in Bedford, he talked with four Christian women who directed him to talk to their pastor, John Gifford. The name John Gifford has appeared on the screen. These four ladies were all members of John Gifford's church, and they directed John to talk to John Gifford. And John Gifford became a great help to John, John Bunyan by quoting to him from the scriptures. Shortly after this, while browsing old books in a bookshop, he found an English translation of Luther's commentary on Galatians. Imagine that. Luther's commentary on Galatians when he's just browsing among books in a bookstore. That was finding treasure, to be sure. Let me back up on that. The next point in the notes here, I, I didn't make a slide for it, but it comes from a book by John Piper, uh, one of a series of books that he wrote on the subject of, he would choose in each one of those books, three individuals from church history and talked about them but on this particular book, which one of the three individuals is Bunyan, John Piper said, It is hard to put a date on his conversion because in retelling the process, that is the process of his conversion, in Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, that's Bunyan's account of his own conversion, he includes almost no dates or times. But Piper adds these words, but it was a lengthy and agonizing process. A lengthy and agonizing process. Now just think about that for a moment. As a description of someone's conversion. Perhaps some in here, if we had time to share all of our testimonies, could be able to describe the fact that your conversion was actually a lengthy process too. It didn't come just like that the first time you heard the gospel. Or the first time your Sunday school teacher taught the little kids and then gave an invitation at the end of the class. 
Perhaps there were many factors involved. Now, you know, it would open the door for what would be a most interesting discussion. Is salvation a point or a line? Well, it's certainly a point in the sense that we have to trust in Christ. We have to believe in him. But I think it's certainly a line, at the very least, in describing all of the influences and circumstances that God uses to bring us to Christ. And listen, those of us, and I would guess that this would be not a few of us in here, those of us who were born and reared in Christian homes had one of the most, one of the greatest blessings that you could ever possibly have. Am I right about that? To be born in a Christian home and to receive instruction from your youth. But do we get into heaven just because we were born into a Christian home? Of course not. Of course not. Yeah. Let's continue. In 1658, his wife died, and the following year, he married a younger woman named Elizabeth. She's called sometimes in, in the accounts of him. She's called Bitsy. Bitsy, that was kind of her nickname. Uh, Bitsy was actually Mary, his first wife's cousin. In 1660, the monarchy, the Cromwell Protectorate ended and the monarchy of Charles II was restored, bringing with it a move to unify the country under the Anglican Church, uh, more specifically under the Church of England, to try to unify the whole country under the Church of England. The Church of England would be the state church. And that's going to bring us very close to, probably very close to the end of your page, among, among other things. When Bunyan continued to preach without a license, without a license from the Church of England, the state church, he was arrested The initial three-month imprisonment extended to 12 years <clears throat> with brief, irregular intervals of liberty. But essentially, we talk about a 12-year imprisonment. The picture that I put on the screen here is a picture from Bedford, England, and a picture of the bridge that goes over the river. And the prison where Bunyan was imprisoned is actually that house-type structure on the bridge on the bridge. <clears throat> Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress when he was a prisoner. Now, there are a number of things that we could add here. Really, our time is up. I even have three questions typed up and on a slide for us to, to think of here. But <clears throat> it is said that Bunyan had two books now, this picture shows two books on his writing desk. Now, you can notice all the way up in the upper right-hand part of this, there are bars on the window, so that he's in prison here. But I see other books here and there, sometimes artistic licenses used in artistic works. But the two works 
that were the most important to him when he was in prison were the Bible. And what's the other one? Fox's Book of Martyrs. How many of you are familiar with Fox's Book of Martyrs? There was a time when Fox's Book of Martyrs was found in virtually every home, every Christian home. Fox's Book of Martyrs is a, a great book. I have a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs that is so old that the pages are literally yellow. Uh, yellow doesn't even describe it. They're like brown. And if I ever try to put a dog ear on any page, it's cracking off for sure. Fox's Book of Martyrs. So those were very influential for him. I, I think I had best not presume on your time. So we're going to conclude right here. But let me tell you, you're doing now. Next week, you should read from the City of Destruction. That is from the very first words of the book up to to what? The Wicked Gate. When when Spurgeon when when Pilgrim comes to the wicked gate.